This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. couple of pieces of weirdly uh, related to uh, Israel Keys, and I don't know if you'll remember that they're related to him or not. I sent you a couple of pieces of true crime news. Did you see the, the, the links I sent? I did. So the first one um, that was interesting was related to this uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma murder. This girl, Brittany Phillips. And she had originally been on my list because of how weird her case was and I ruled her out pretty early you know when we were doing our thing Uh, the way that I was able to do that was um, there's a lot of information about her case out there now she's not covered in the national news as much as I had thought she would be Uh, Brittany's case is not Uh, she has a Facebook page and then if you go to BrittanyPhillipsMurder.net I'm pretty sure that case is maybe maintained by the family. Her mom was very active with uh, looking for tips in her case. Uh, the, the very quick summary of it was in September of 2004, she, uh, she was home, but not, she was living uh, uh, in Tulsa, which is, you know, her home city. And she had been at, like the previous year, she had been on a full scholarship done at Eckerd College at St. Petersburg, Florida. And that was one of the things that like brought her uh, to my attention. There was a point in time when I was affiliated with Eckerd College and uh, her, her case came to be, uh, came to my attention back then. I thought they had solved it for some reason, but the gist of it was she was living in this um, sort of off campus area and sometime between September 27th, 2004 and September 28th, 2004, because they have a voicemail of her, I think on September the 27th, where she called and, and she had left a message with her doctor who she saw for allergies. She was trying to get a new medication to, to help her out. Um, and she was hoping that she could get like a walk-in appointment. But anyways, sometime that night into the next day, uh, there was either someone in her apartment or someone broke in through the French doors, which she lived on the, the second story of these uh, apartments. And uh, they could have gotten in through the, the French doors on the deck or they could have gotten in through a window. And they raped her and they suff- suffocated her. And it took three or four days before uh, someone ended up finding her. Her her mom talks about it, um, different Websites have covered it. There's not a lot of main coverage, but she was on my keys list until I like ruled out a couple of elements there. And, you know, I could still look at this down the road and, and somebody could convince me that, that it was related. But I, I saw there was an article published up in, in February. A woman named Lori Fulbright wrote it up for uh, News 6 out of Tulsa, which is newsonsix.com. 
and the the title of the article was New Evidence Found in 2004, Tulsa Unsolved Murder. And here's how the article sort of reads, and we'll talk about it for a minute. A new piece of evidence could mean everything for a Tulsa murder that's gone unsolved for 18 years, or it could be nothing. That's why the victim's mother is asking for help. Brittany Phillips was raped and murdered in 2004. It's just come to light that a week after her murder, Brittany's grandfather received a card from her. If she's the one who mailed it, it could change a lot about the case. Brittany sent a card to her grandfather every year, but could never remember his address. So she would send the card through her father. Her father just recently found the last card that Brittany sent hidden away in a box. It arrived after Brittany had been buried, but had a stamp on it similar to one that was bought September 29, 2004. Brittany's mother had always been told that Brittany died either September 27th or 28th. So this was a shocker to say the least. It was almost like being told she died again. It was a piece of her, said Maggie Zingman, uh, Brittany's mother. She's not showing the exact stamp since it and the card are evidence, and she's given them to police. But she said stamps like this one are bought at a kiosk or at a post office desk. There's really two viable options, two options. And number one is tearing my heart apart is that she mailed it, said Maggie. She said the second option and likely the more logical one is that Brittany had asked a friend to mail the card for her. However, Maggie's asked Brittany's brother and a handful of her friends, and they said that they didn't mail it. So now she's asking anyone who did mail it to please come forward. We need to know because this changes the whole timeline on her death. This can affect so many things, Maggie said. Brittany was in college when she was raped and strangled in her South Tulsa apartment. Originally, investigators believed DNA from the scene would solve the case. It was compared to more than 1,500 suspects, but they were all ruled out because they weren't a match. Then, a few years ago, Maggie got the devastating news that DNA was not the killers after all, but belonged to a young man who had spent the night with his girlfriend at Brittany's apartment. That means that some of those suspects who were ruled out could still be the killer. Maggie wants to know if this new piece of evidence might be significant. To know that, she needs to know if someone besides Brittany mailed the card. Is it going to bring her back? No, but we need to find out if someone mailed it. This is just so important because if not, that stamp, I don't know how to express this, but that stamp can't lie, Maggie said. Uh, And again, you can read more about her uh, case at BrittanyPhillipsMurder.net. Uh, that's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, murder.net. Had you heard of this case before, outside of me putting it on a list years ago? No, not really. And I honestly, I don't understand what the mom is saying. You don't understand what she's saying in terms of it being important? So basically, I don't see how they know the stamp was purchased like the next day or whatever. I think what the, uh, so there's a couple things at play here. First of all, I think they're being a little cagey here with how they're saying it. Cause I do believe it's evidence or they're thinking it might be evidence here is, is what I think is happening. I think that this stamp is not just the physical stamp that's on there, but also like the use stamp. So I'm thinking that it's indicative that the card was mailed on September the 29th, which 
if Britney putting it in a box changes the timeline. Cause there's a little bit of a, you know, like a question of when did she actually die? And the way that it looks like, if you just look at like a September 2004 calendar, the, the way that this like runs out is the 27th is a Monday. And we know that she left a voicemail for her doctor the evening of the 27th, trying to get in to see him on the 28th. Brittany's mom gets notified Friday at one o'clock in the morning that her daughter's been murdered, which means it's a pretty quick notification. So sometime Thursday night, um, her body is found, which means she was thought to have laid there from Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the 28th, the 29th, the 30th. I think her thinking is if Brittany mailed it, that means she was killed later. And that's why it would be important. I mean, they don't mention here that like there have been killers over the years who have mailed stuff after the fact for victims. That's a really rare occurrence. So, uh, well, I I think that, yeah, I, I think that she put it, in the mailbox after the mail had been picked up on the 28th. And so it didn't get processed until the 29th. That's what I'm picturing happened. And so to me, I'm going, this poor woman, I'm struggling to sort of understand what she's getting at. I thought there was going to be some more information about how it was relevant. And then, of course, you went through everything, they, all the information they gave and I just, I couldn't figure out, you know, because if something could be purchased at a kiosk one day, it could be purchased the next day, more than likely, or the day earlier, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was just, I don't know, I, I was just confused by all that. Yeah, uh, it, it is confusing. I, you know, it, it's a weird case for me because uh, there were... This is one of those that like sort of had a profile that was partially put up on the media back at the time. I think that this case, my gut says this case will be solved and it'll be someone who's already deceased. Um, And I don't know exactly how they'll be related to Brittany. It could be a random. There was a point in time where like I pulled up this uh, apartment complex, the Glen Eagles apartment complex. It doesn't go by that anymore, but that's what it used to be called. And it, there's a lot of things about this case that made it a possible random uh, sort of based on proximity of the highways and based on some of the other things that were going on. At one point, the police like were putting out that like it could have been an accident where it was a rape that went too far. You know, there's a number of things about this that like I- I'm with you. I don't feel like this is a huge piece of new information. I'm really talking about this case because something inside of me thought that this case was solved. And I figured if this case is unsolved, I should talk about it because it it was something I was interested in. Well, not to mention, like, it seems like uh, receiving a card, well, maybe he received it, like, before they found out she was dead. But it just seems like receiving a card from your daughter who died would be something you Grant, would take note of at the moment. 
I, th- I think it's the transfer from the father to the grandfather. So I think she didn't remember her grandfather's address. So she drops it in the mail. And it, it's probably like you said, it, it's after the pickup on the 28th. So it takes a day or two to get to dad. By then they've, you know, so if, if it's after the 28th and it goes out on the 29th, which is Wednesday, and it takes two days to get there, which puts it there Friday, he doesn't think to take it to grandpa because he's found out that Brittany's dead. And by the time he gets to the grandpa, grandpa probably just sort of files it away. I don't know, man. I feel like I would have noticed that. No, I'm, I'm sure you noticed it, but it may have been difficult to look at the card that's coming from someone who passed away. And then he just didn't well, tell anybody right. else about it to not, you know, but cause a problem. Somebody passed away, sure. But when you've got an unsolved murder, like I would be scouring everything, but maybe that's just me. Well, like I said, if there's, you know, if there's any way that anyone knows anything about this um, and you come across me talking about it, pass it on. Um, Eddie Majors has this case or had this case. I think he's still got it. I think he's the current lead detective with it. Um, He's actually with the Tulsa District Attorney's Office. um, And you can reach him at emajors at cityoftulsa.org. And if you just look up Eddie Majors, Tulsa, it uh, comes up with all its information there where you could call in and um, and leave a tip if you happen to know something about this. <laughs> what ruled her out for you for keys? Uh, there was something about the way the apartment. Well, okay. So first of all, the DNA was still a thing for me that uh, I only just resolved it through the research now. And I thought if they had DNA, surely they would have realized it was keys. Um, by this we, point, have we, I can't remember if we've ever released that particular nugget of information where we found out he was for certain in CODIS. Oh, you know what? It may not have, um, it may not have come up that we confirmed that, uh, that's a good point. Um, but yet, so he is in CODIS. Um, and we, in my opinion, this particular case, I think would have hit on him. Uh, it, it could still like, there are like ways this could be him, but it would require some significant changes to my thinking about keys in order to re-include a case like this. Th- a case like this being included would change everything. Well, sure. And, um, what did it for me was I doubt very seriously any of his victims were found in their own home. That was one of the, yeah, that was one of the ongoing things for me. Um, the, uh, the location of the body being found like in her apartment like that, uh, it says that it could be a random person. It's less likely to be a random person at that point, unless there's some kind of a, a break-in or something. And I looked at the, you know, I looked at the time frame in Tulsa. There were a number of um, things going on there at the time that sort of caught my attention. I didn't, I didn't like her necessarily for keys, but weirdly, one of the reasons she, she came up was when I went through everything related to missing persons and unsolved homicides, I was looking at people who happened to have been on that, that weird cash of um, uh, name mismatches in Keith's computer, even people that just had the same initials as someone. And she I, came up because of that? Yeah, she came up because one of those, which we now know 
are, are meaningless in terms of the Q's investigation. Um, but we didn't at the time that were on that VICAP page. It was the other person that has an update. So Brittany Phillips, BP, she has this update, which, you know, really just spotlights the case again. And any chance I get to do that, I'm going to do it. Oh, uh, sure. I agree. I just, um, I wasn't sure if you had gleaned more from uh, the information than I did. I just, sometimes I just miss the boat. You know what I mean? Like it could be perfectly, uh, perfectly relevant to everybody else. And I just don't get it, but it seems like you kind of felt the same way I did. So. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I look through like all these, I say, I don't know how many true crime things I send you a week, but it's probably in the hundreds every week. It's some like, and that's not the connected things. That's just like what we're looking at. Like right now there's a missing boater off the coast of North Carolina, South Carolina. We've been looking at, we, I think we both still have a little bit of fascination with uh, the Idaho murders, but you know, there's a lot of things that come and go in our week where we're looking at updates on old cases. A lot of them I don't really bring them up here, but every once in a while, something will, will strike my interest like this one. I think that it, eventually, you know, they'll make a match, hopefully. with. Oh, wait, they said they the can. DNA was Yeah, they the, ruled it so out. So they don't have DNA. But she was assaulted, right? She she was uh, raped. And, I, you know, I'll say this about that. She was raped, and I remember this, and it's it's somewhere in the, in the midst of all this information, but I don't have it sitting in front of me. So I'm just going to say it this way. There was something about the profile that they threw out there that I think it said they suspected there, he might be having sexual difficulties or impotency. And um, that always stands out to me because there's like these handful of cases that I talk about here. When they say that, it makes me think that the rape was an object, which there's a possibility when, uh, when rape is an object that there's not DNA. You know, it could be that they go back over some things in this crime scene and they might find some trace DNA. But, oh, here it is. I found it while we're talking. They had a profile that they put, and it is on uh, the Brittany Phillips murder website. It's on the sidebar, which doesn't show up on your phone, but it'll show up on a browser. It says um, kind of facts of the case. What happened was rape and murder by suffocation. No indicators that there was a rope or a utensil used. Uh, so that's what. The where is Tulsa, Oklahoma, inside the second story bedroom of a northwest end of the complex apartment. It's uh, facing what's known as the storage center. This, this is what used to be known as Glen Eagles. It's currently called Somerset Park at Union Apartments. Uh, it's next to Union High School at 65th and Mingo between 71st and 61st Street in Tulsa. So it's off of Mingo. Uh, how? Uh, they broke in either through the balcony porch doors, uh, windows, or all of the upstairs apartments have an entry into an attic. Uh, so the whole building shares the same attic. So he could have come in from any of those spaces. He either came there before she came home from school or after she came home, possibly after she was asleep. He possibly made it look like he had broken in, uh, but he could have been inside waiting for her. Uh, when, uh, so between 9 p.m. on September 27, 2004, and 8 a.m. on September 28, 2004, she's discovered on September 30, 2004. She lay dead for three days, so exact time of death was hard to determine. Profile, male, 
um, and this was what they said based originally on the DNA, uh, said, what might the person be like? And it says some of these or all of these may apply. A, uh, may often be someone who is up and or out alone at night. B, may have sexual problems. He could be the type who denies he has any problems and or focuses on them with anger. Uh, C, he may be into high-risk behaviors that are dangerous uh, or cause pain to himself or others. He may also be into hurting during sex, BDSM, or snuff films. That was one of the things that made me think object as well. Uh, D, may be someone who is always seems angry, interpreting him as being people as being against him, like kind of paranoid, uh, people putting him down, uh, acting better than him. He may be like this all the time or he may have sudden explosions. E, he may or may not have been arrested for rape. But if he was, he may have, if he was, he may also have a charge such as endangering behavior or outrageous public indecency. And he won't call them rapes. Uh, those arrested for first degree rape often are only charged with misdemeanors like endangering a minor or endangering an incapacitated person. F, uh, because we have compared over 3,000 suspects' DNA to our killers without any matches, there's a chance he's from somewhere else. He may have traveled September, October 2004, anywhere in the Southwest. F1, when he returned, he may have begun to act very different, anxious, angry, depressed, started using drugs or alcohol, or increased his use of drugs or alcohol. G, he may have been outgoing, but if it was accidental, he changed and began to isolate himself. By 10 years, someone who accidentally killed her might be eaten up with guilt. H, he may have attempted to hurt or kill himself out of guilt, or he may have committed suicide. I, he may drive I-35, I-44, or I-40 because of work or has friends in Oklahoma or surrounding states that he must go through Oklahoma for. Uh, J, he could have a public service job related to bill pay, cell phones, where he accesses customers' addresses. Um, and can possibly even work in utilities uh, with access to addresses. All of this stuff that she's sharing here comes from either private or public, private or government profiles, um, the, the terminology. Uh, she doesn't say that. I'm inferring it based on my experience with those types of reports. Um, I don't know if the DNA has changed. I was under the impression that it has based on that article where we were just talking about it. The DNA, uh, they did a profile from the DNA sample that they thought was the killer, and when they recognized the person, and that's how they discovered that it was the roommate's boyfriend or whatever, which, honestly, it doesn't make any sense that uh, that happened, because if you have what you believe is the killer's DNA, it needs to have a reason to be the killer's DNA, Right. Yeah. I don't understand how they uh, apparently the person it matched uh, once they did the workup at the picture, the profile picture composite of what the DNA sample was telling, you know, the genetic genealogist or whoever did it. Um, and they recognized him. He had an, an alibi for the time, according to them, what I read. And so, you know, that makes me wonder, OK, so they've got this DNA sample that they've said was the killer's, they match it to someone, and now it's not the killer's DNA anymore. Well, there you go. Like, 
how did they have this earmarked DNA that wasn't the killer's? What else have they missed or mislabeled or whatever? Because the problem with touch DNA that you were talking about possibly arising was that like, you know, once everybody's DNA is everywhere, it becomes irrelevant. Well, you're still going to have situations where touch DNA versus like a, a tangible DNA sample, right? Yeah. It's, it's going to, those are two very different things. DNA that's relevant to being killer's DNA for any victim. It's going to be very hard to say, oops, that was the old roommate's boyfriend or whatever the connection there was. That's really strange to me because that doesn't make any sense. And, you know, did they not have any more DNA? I would say with touch DNA as well, it's it's virtually impossible to not leave some DNA behind. I'm just going to say that I think part of this falls on the fact that she was there for a couple of days before anyone found her. And one of the things that does, like, like a body can contaminate its own crime scene. That's true. I mean, you're right. Uh, you mean decomp, right? Is that what you're? Yeah, I'm referencing like I'm referencing decomp. I'm referencing you know September in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like the body's fluids alone can sort of absorb as they come out DNA that might have been useful. That could be why they don't have better samples. I would say that uh, her fingernails would have been the best place probably to get them, and if the guys. DNA was under her fingernails. They should probably check the alibi again. Well, it, it says they did. It comes up in multiple articles. It, uh, apparently, this is something that came up in 2019. I did look just to see like what had gone on there. And there are multiple sort of examples them in the articles. There are multiple instances in the articles where they mention matching the DNA very carefully and Parabon being involved and then bringing him in and like checking his alibi. And, you know, they didn't even go back to mom and tell her until they were really sure that it wasn't him. So I think they did a pretty good job. I think there could be mistakes, but I think they did a pretty good job. Well, I mean, that's fine. I guess it's just my perspective on, you know, they don't give out the information of where the DNA sample was gathered from or whatever, but right. The most interesting thing that you just kind of ticked off there on the letter uh, list was the fact that all the apartments had a connecting attic. Yep. And uh, that's scary to me, for one thing, because if I understand that correctly, that means like anybody with access to any of the apartments in theory could go up in the attic and then come back down in any of the other apartments. Yeah. So that's that's really weird. <laughs> I think it is I weird, I, and I've never heard of anything like that. Um, it doesn't seem maybe it wasn't really accessible. Like it, while it was that way, if you're not up to no good, you're not going to be up there anyway, right? Yeah. But well, that's interesting. Yeah, I just was throwing that out there, but so you know, we're gonna go. It's about 430 miles away for the other case update. So this was a VICAP page back in the day. I don't. I didn't look today to see if it was there. But uh, for those of you like who may not like realize what what I'm talking about right now, we've covered 
Israel Keys pretty extensively. And one of the things that we realized in the course of covering Keys was that all this information they released where they had 44 to 50 names of people whose photos had been found in the browser cache of one of Key's computers, they linked back to a lot of missing persons and unsolved cases. They sort of isolated these 46 or so missing persons. But when I recreated the search during the course of us trying to figure out if that meant anything, where I could find like almost in the exact order they released it was the recognized matches from Key's computer were all on a single page of the FBI's VICAP page at around the time he would have been looking, sometime 2011, 2012. That's what the page would look like when he brought up FBI.gov and clicked on uh, missing persons. It would be those people all in one place. Uh, one of those names was uh, the name Bianca Piper. So Brittany Phillips, BP, I had looked her unsolved murder up and put her on this giant list of suspects I had developed outside of the missing persons uh, because of uh, Bianca Noel Piper. Now, she went missing March 10th, 2005, from a place called Foley, Missouri, which is about 400 miles and change from uh, where we were just talking about in Tulsa. Uh, and for people who don't remember this description, here's how that goes. Bianca was last seen at approximately 6.15 p.m. on March 10th, 2005, her mother dropped her off at McIntosh Hill Road in Foley, Missouri, about a mile from their home. She had been having anger management problems and had a tantrum about chores the night of her disappearance. Her therapist had advised her mother to drive her a distance from home and make her walk back alone to deal with the aggression. Bianca and her mother had tried the treatment only once prior to March 10th, but it had been helpful, and Bianca requested that it be done again. She also asked to be dropped further from home than she had been before. And she never arrived home and has never been seen or heard from again. Her mother reported her missing about two hours later at 8.20 p.m. Investigators at first believed that Bianca had become lost on her way back home. And if that theory was correct, she would have succumbed to exposure in a pretty short time. Uh, temperatures in the area had dipped that evening below freezing. However, an extensive search turned up no sign of Bianca, and authorities now believe she may have been abducted. She has no history of running away from home. Her mother and her mother's live-in boyfriend both passed polygraph tests. Her biological father was extensively interviewed, and none of her family members were considered suspects in that case. Now, in 2007, investigators they began investigating a man named Michael Devlin for possible involvement in Bianca's disappearance and in several other cases, including the 1991 disappearance of a man named Charles Henderson and the 1988 disappearance of a man named Scott uh, Sean Holmbeck was a 15-year-old boy who had disappeared in 2002, and William Ownby was a 13-year-old boy who was abducted in 2007. They were both found alive in Michael Devlin's house in January of 2007. Ownby had been missing for five days, and Sean had been missing for over four years. Uh, both boys had been held against their will by Devlin, who subsequently pleaded guilty to kidnapping and child molestation and was sentenced to life in prison. Authorities initially suspected Devlin could be linked to other missing child cases and formed a multi-jurisdictional task force to investigate this theory. In October 2007, so eight months 
10 months later, the task force gets dissolved because they couldn't find any evidence that Devin was involved with any other missing children. Uh, Bianca remained on that list for a while. She was an eighth grader at Winfield Middle School at the time of her disappearance. She was in special ed classes due to her short attention span and the fact that she had missed a lot of school due to her psychiatric illnesses. Her teacher stated that she was artistically talented. Now, her father died in 2009, but her mother and sister are still alive and looking for her. Uh, her mother now lives in St. Charles, Missouri. Her case remains unsolved. This is the Charlie Project's description of her. She was 13, 5 foot 6, 185 pounds, last seen wearing a uh, lime green shirt with a gray Adidas hooded sweatshirt, blue jeans, and white sneakers, and she was carrying a flashlight. She was a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. Um, she had numerous scars on her legs and her abdomen, and her ears were pierced. Anyway, so that's Bianca's case, who is what led me to Brittany a long time ago. And weirdly, at the same time there's an update in Brittany's case, there is an update in Lincoln County, Missouri, where Foley, Missouri is, fox2now.com, which is the local-ish news out there. Uh, they, they put this up on February 3rd of 2023 and said that Lincoln County crews were searching for clues in cold cases. Uh, this one's interesting. So the gist of this, did you, did you see this update? Like what they're talking about here? No. Okay. But did they, well, I'm just curious, did they find her? Well, they haven't said what's going on with it. So a lot has gone on over the year where Bianca kind of comes back in the news. Like they, they started this whole cold case thing out there a couple of years ago and she got pretty high on their list. Well, uh, Lincoln County says that they are searching an area on McIntosh Road near where she disappeared. They drained a septic tank on a property there. That's what they're saying right now. Um, and oh, so that's not going to be a natural death. Correct. I, my impression was, and I, you know, I can't explain it because they said they looked for her. And I do agree that, well, you know, bodies, uh, while people can wander off, it's really hard to make a body disappear. It, I think my impression of that case was that she more than likely just succumbed to the elements just because of the information I had. Right. Um, it didn't seem like she was in a, it, it seemed like the, uh, you know, for one thing, like what a terrible idea to have your kid walk home. Um, but you know, whatever, it's what happened, but like how the circumstances had to have lined up there. Right. Yeah. And so, um, when you said that, I thought maybe they had finally found her because I think if what I envisioned happening happened, like she was going to be looking for somewhere warm. And I feel like that would make if you die anyway, you end up being hidden. Right. Yeah. But you're saying uh, I'll have to see the update. You're saying that they drained a septic tank. That's all it says. Like, that's the whole that's the whole update. I, like it, it just basically recaps what I just said with her disappearing. And then it, it literally says in the middle of that, that it's, there's a quote in here from a captain on the police force. that says that we have essentially drained uh, the, the uh, septic tank on this McIntosh Hill road, which is not a very long road. 
Um, and Captain David Hill, who uh, I said police, but he's actually from the sheriff's office. He basically said that they were reviewing the contents of the septic tank. So I don't know. I don't know what they're like looking for there. I got the impression that they were just looking for evidence that a body had ever been in there, which is interesting. Sort of an odd That's weird. Yeah. Um, I guess they've looked everywhere else because they must think the same thing. You know, that sounds like they're just trying to um, say it could be, she can't could, possibly be there and check it off or whatever. Well, if, if you go on like any of the maps apps and you just pull up McIntosh Hill Road, first of all, it is a very small place. Second of all, it is right next to the Missouri-Illinois line which happens to be uh, where the Mississippi River runs through. Like, and I, when I say right next to her house was like 4,000 feet from the Mississippi River uh, and a couple of highways running through that area. In her description, it said she had a lot of cuts. Was she, um, I know it said she had anger issues. Was she a cutter? Does, have you read anything about that? Like self-harm, you mean? Yeah, like self-harm. Or did she have any sort of suicidal... Um, something that she something she had on her abdomen was actually like a... I think it was a surgery scar. Also, this is a, like kind of a hilly area, by the way. I forgot to mention that part a minute ago. I don't know that I read that she was a self... She's 13. I mean, there's all sorts yeah. of possibilities that don't end with her dying. Right, but it, it I yeah, I agree. I just um I wonder just sort of based on that, you know, that was a weird thing for her mom to sort of um drive her out and be like, Okay, walk home and I and I don't think it said how far away she was or whatever, but uh the police seemed satisfied that the parents weren't involved and it's just a weird thing, I think. Well, and so so she was on there's a photo of her in the cache of photos um in the browser cache from Key's computer and she happened the weekend that he said he went to see some friends in Eastern Washington. I don't know if you remember that comment. This is that weekend. Um Right, so, and he was like, I don't have any friends in Eastern Washington, right? Right, right. So we had sort of logically concluded he had done Washington or Oregon or something during that time period, never really figured out exactly what it was. But the bottom line is uh, her case is well covered. I thought it was interesting that they were digging in a, in a septic tank. Yeah, um, it doesn't sound like they have any particular reason why they're digging there, though, except that it's one place they haven't looked that she might be. Could be. I mean, so this was an area that had pit latrines at that time that I had looked at. And I so I scratch her at the end of it all because she's too far away. There's things, keys that we knew he had done where we didn't think he would be all the way over here in Missouri. So I scratch her out, but I took her case really far before I recreated the VICAP searches and realized she was just a name on a list. Here's what was interesting about her case. She'd only be 31 years old today. Right. Well, she was 13 at the time. Yeah. Anyways, I, I don't think this is a, an Israel keys case at all. 
Um, I think that her being on his computer is pure coincidence based on where he clicked looking to see if he'd be caught for some uh, what I what I really think he was doing when this all came up, I think he was looking to see if the Texas bank robbery had made the FBI page yet. That's my opinion on how he gets to the Vicat page. Because right next to each other, it's the bank robbery and the missing persons page. Back then. It's not like that anymore. If you look at it today, it'll look different. Or he could have been looking to see if the couriers were on. Yep. He could have been looking at the couriers as well because they would have been in One of the reasons that we came to that conclusion, and it was a long, drawn-out process, but um, there were additional pictures um, found. So some of the pictures on his hard drive matched the photos that were in NamUs. But several of the individuals had more pictures than what NamUs had. Right. Correct. And that's why we came to the conclusion that it couldn't have been, I mean, it, just name us. Right. It had to. So, but some of the pictures that, and what I mean is like, you know how you have a headshot that's representative of a missing person. A lot of times. Or a missing person flyer that pops up. Yeah. It's like one picture that, you know, it, it reasonably looks like them. Right. Yes. Um, and then you have other pictures that are released. But a lot of times if you have the good picture to begin with, like the other pictures are just kind of randomly found sporadically in other places online. Right. Correct. Um, it's, and that's how like we determine it couldn't just be NamUs because there were more pictures of the individuals. And I believe it was quite a few more pictures of quite a few of the individuals. Correct. And what we realized was if you clicked on the VICAP page, and I even I ran this search, I won't swear by it like right this second, but I'm pretty sure I could duplicate a version of it to show people. Uh, Bianca Piper has been moved to a different section of this page now. So it's one of the changes I was able to track. But if I hovered over her at one point, I could, you know, go to her page individually and see a lot of pictures. Those pictures would have been in my browser cache, even if I didn't specifically go to her page. And and again, this is no longer the case. It was the case at a specific point in time. If you go there today, like to FBI.gov and you go, I think it's now under like most wanted and it's like kidnappings and missing persons. You can still see a lot of these people sort of side by side. It's just not the exact same thing it was back then you know, keep that in mind. And I did sort it one way where I got pretty close, like by maybe by created date or something like that. But I can tell you that that change occurred between 2010 and 2012, where they started like kind of switching up uh, where they kept people. For some reason, they kept certain people on the kidnapping and missing persons page And some of them moved to Seeking Info, and some of them moved to Missing Children's Pages. Bianca Piper is one of those changes I was able to track. So if Keys did the exact same search today, he wouldn't find Bianca Piper. He would actually have a different person in that place. Um, But there's still some children who pop up on that page, so I don't totally understand the rhyme or reason or what they're tracking there. I just do know that I was able to find exemplars of probably all the other photographs on the FBI's homepage of Holly Bebo. Uh, and she, she's no longer on there because she's now been found. 
anyways, so that's sort of a, a long update, like a whole episode long set of updates. It'll have to be another tangent episode. <laughs> well, I'm still going to talk, uh, talk about part of what we were doing with the Epona stuff because I have it like set and ready for us to do it. One of the people I mentioned last week, we talked a little bit about the victims in sort of the highway of tears, murders, even though we don't, we personally don't link them together. Um, the the person that I'm going to talk a little bit about today is high on the list and he's the only one with like a pretty high victim count, actually. Um, where we were pulling from there was from Dying Words. And Dying Words is uh, it's a blog on the internet that uh, a guy named... Um, Gary Rogers maintains he was a retired Royal Canadian mounted police serious crimes detective. He has sort of a, a rundown on the, the highway of tears. And he mentions a couple of killers. Um, most of them have one or two victims that sort of fall into this pile of victims. Uh, this one, he doesn't. And his, he's actually like, in my opinion, kind of weird. He is a serial killer rapist and he is like a, definitely a, a bad dude. I don't think we've ever, have we mentioned him on here? I don't think he's come up. I don't think he has either. If, if he did, it would have just been in passing. So the person that we're talking about here, uh, is he's somebody that you can pretty easily Google and find a lot of different medium about. He's interesting in sort of the perspective of what we're looking at related to this case. This is Cody Allen, uh, legend of golf. I think is how you say his last name. It's L-E-G-E-B-O-K-O-F-F. And for the rest of this episode, I'm just going to call him Cody. Cody has the distinction of being one of the youngest convicted Canadian serial killers. And so he gets apprehended in November of 2010. But what is interesting about him is he ends up sort of stepping into the EPANA project timeline. And I want to sort of just give a glaring overview of Cody because we don't have, we don't have a lot of time left here to, before we get to like sort of the point of this little series that we're doing. I genuinely like, I realized like it's impossible for him to have been involved in most of what we're looking at because of his age. And I felt like since he did have multiple victims here, we should, we should talk about him. Uh, let me ask you first, had you ever heard of Cody? I had, but just because, uh, just from his association with the Highway of Tears murders, and it's he's part of the reason why I initially started considering those cases separately. Yeah, that that's sort of how he comes up for me as well. Now, okay, with when I look at this, like it, it's actually like it's difficult to talk about him without putting things in more of a Canadian light because um, it is very different than how the U.S. covers things. So I'm going to start off talking about him from the perspective of a September 2014 article by Christy Blatchford. Now, this is from Canada.com uh, Post Media News, and she had a pretty cool uh, seat for all of this that. Uh, it gave a perspective I haven't seen in a lot of places. And here's what she says. The Sunday I arrived in Prince George, BC for the first time, I went out for a bit of a recce after unpacking. She went on a little reconnaissance mission. I always do this when I'm on the road 
mostly to scope out running rooms. It was a nice June day. What I saw in the downtown, many buildings, one story, social service storefronts aimed squarely at a First Nations clientele left me filled with despair. A young woman who appeared to be inebriated was begging a lift from an older man in a pickup truck. A few blocks away at the only mall in the city center, I saw a couple of 20 or 30-somethings women with the telltale melted faces of the crystal meth user. All of this is happening within a stone's throw of the notorious Highway of Tears, Highway 16, which runs from Prince George to Prince Rupert, 800 clicks or kilometers away. It's near or off this highway where so many missing and murdered Aboriginal girls and women were last seen alive. Officially, the RCMP in British Columbia are probing 18 such murders or disappearances, but nationally, as the RCMP revealed in May of 2013, police across Canada recorded 1,181 incidents of Aboriginal female murders and unresolved disappearances between 1980 and 2012. Prince George is where BC Supreme Court Justice Glenn Parrott lives. It's also where he practices law with a famous firm and where he has long served as a resident judge. The courthouse is right downtown, and the sights I saw that day would also smack him in the face. This brings me to the Cody Lejevikov trial, which ended Tuesday when Parrott delivered his reasons for sentencing. The 24-year-old was convicted September 11th by a jury of four counts of first-degree murder in the slayings of Jill Stichinko, Natasha Montgomery, Cynthia Moss, and partially blind 15-year-old Lauren Leslie. I was not there for the sentencing, though the penalty for first-degree murder is automatic, life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. There were some findings the judge had to make, and I was curious what he might say. He's a formidable character who runs a tight ship and has a delightfully low tolerance for BS. I thought he was smart and humane. His judgment offers evidence of both. He treated the murdered women and their many relatives who showed for court with respect but not delicacy. About each, he included humanizing details in a process that can sometimes lose perspective through the use of labels, which sometimes mask and obscure the people behind those labels. Stachinko, Montgomery, and Moss were all drug users who sometimes worked in the sex trade. But Stachinko, who was 35, was also a mother of six. And as the judge wrote in October of 2009, as many Canadians were enjoying their Thanksgiving dinner with family and friends, she was dead or dying. Montgomery, who was 23 when she disappeared, had just been released from jail, where she had kept close pictures of her two youngsters. Moss, who was 35 when she died in September of 2010, was a mother of a little girl. Leslie, who suffered multiple injuries to her hands as she fought off Cody, was no less a target, in her case, by her age and trusting nature. Nothing sexual, right? She told Cody shortly before she agreed to meet him for the first time. His purpose, as Parrott said, was purely sexual. He concluded that all four murders were committed during the course of a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault. Thus, he found that Cody was a sex offender and would be registered as such for life. Then Parrott took judicial notice of the fact that the budget of the RCMP Highway of Tears Task Force has been slashed in the past two years by 84%. The discovery of Canada's youngest serial killer when a smart young RCMP constable named Aaron Keller 
stopped Cody's truck as it roared onto a highway and then noticed blood on his shorts and legs. Cody claimed the blood was from a deer he'd poached, but the young officer was suspicious, dispatched the conservation officer to the bush, and there he found not the body of a deer, but of Lauren Leslie. What followed, Parrott said, was good sound police work linking the other three killings back to the same killer. But make no mistake, the judge said, it was luck that began these events. Without Constable Keller and that luck, the judge said, the grief and horrors we heard from the families may well have simply been a precursor. Cody was just 20 when he was stopped, and he may have just been getting started. I know that First Nations people are disproportionately represented in this roll call of misery, said Parrott, but as the facts of this trial so vividly demonstrate, this is not just a First Nations issue. It's a sociological issue, one that arises from, among other things, a high-risk lifestyle. It is something which must be dealt with. The victims of this case represent two members of First Nations descent and two of Caucasian background. We simply must do better. The sociological comment was widely seen as a rebuke to Prime Minister Stephen Harper's recent comment that a national inquiry into the murder of missing women isn't necessary because this is a crime and policing problem. And maybe it was that. But I also think it was the frank measure of a man who, despite all the years he has spent in his town, has not grown blind, deaf, or insensitive to the people and the pain he sees there. I thought that was an interesting representation of the entire trial kind of in like one article. So I didn't want to go through all of like Cody's world, but I did want to talk about him a little bit. And I, I just want to like briefly talk about the victims. And then I want to see what you think about how all that fits in with this highway of tears thing. If that's okay. Sure. Obviously the arrest comes because Aaron Keller pulls him over. Uh, here is like the nutshell version of that. On November 27, 2010, an RCMP officer observed a man pull his truck onto British Columbia Highway 27 from a remote logging road. According to the case report prepared by that same officer, he suspected that the vehicle was speeding and he signaled for him to pull over. After being joined by a second officer and approaching the vehicle, the officers say they noticed the driver had blood smears on his face and his chin, blood on his legs, and they saw a pool of blood on the driver's floor mat. Searching the pickup truck, the officers claim they discovered a multi-tool and a wrench covered in blood, as well as a monkey backpack and a wallet containing a children's hospital insurance card with the name Lauren Leslie on it. When questioned about the blood upon his person, the driver purportedly stated he was poaching and he had clubbed a deer to death because, quote, I'm a redneck, and that's what we do for fun. The officers arrested the driver under the Canada Wildlife Act and called for a conservation officer who retraced the tire tracks of the truck. According to police, the tracks led directly to the body of Lauren Don Leslie. After his arrest in connection with the death of Leslie, the driver, who's Cody in this instance, was linked by DNA to the deaths of Jill Stacy Duchinko, Cynthia Francis Moss, and Natasha Lynn Montgomery. Jill was a 35-year-old mother of five, last seen on October 9, 2009, found dead four days later in a gravel pit on the outskirts of Prince George. 
Cynthia was last seen September 10, 2010, and her body was found in a Prince George Park the following month. She died of blood force trauma to the head and penetrating wounds. She had a hole in her shoulder blade, a broken jaw and cheekbone, and injuries to her neck consistent with someone having stomped on her. Natasha was last seen August 31st or early on September 1st, 2010. Her body has never been found, but her DNA was later found in samples taken from Cody's apartment. The Crown has said that Stachinko Moss and Montgomery had worked in the sex trade and that Cody was addicted to cocaine and used sex workers to get him this drug. Lauren was something of an outlier as she was far younger than the other victims and allegedly met Cody online on the website Nexapia. Uh, Leslie was legally blind, having one completely blind eye on only 50% vision in the other. So September 11, 2014, he's sentenced to the maximum sentence after he's found guilty. You know, Cody testifies here and he tells these stories about him being involved in these deaths but not having committed the killings. And he blames a drug dealer and his accomplices. But he's pretty, pretty clearly a serial killer in the making, don't you think? He's or a it's serial not just it's not just in the making. He's a serial killer. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, um, but yeah, like he he's really young for one thing. It's interesting because uh, when we've looked at serial killers, um, we give them a a broad time period where we like start them really young killing, right? But yeah. if you think about uh, a lot of times, you don't know when the first. Uh, victim of a serial killer was, right, if they don't give the whole story. But so this kid was 20 years old, and he's killing, you know, 35, 35, 23, and 15-year-old women, right? Yeah. And that's that's interesting. Now, it's my understanding that all of those cases had DNA evidence, right? They did, yes. Okay, and so, like, there's no question that he is... Um, all of them had blood somewhere in in the course of like the the searches and not like small amounts like he was he definitely killed these women and left evidence behind at his own apartment and other places that on his belongings right and so i think that um this will reconfirm that uh when you're evaluating who is a serial killer or not one of the essential check marks would be that they were taken into custody because they were driving badly. Yeah. Now, this case sticks out in my mind because um, I always wondered it. Well, I didn't wonder, but I always thought to myself if somebody had been like a little bit more on it. Could Lauren Leslie have been saved? I don't, you know, I've looked at the different accounting of this and I, I don't think so. I think we're just lucky that, uh, she was found at all. Well, sure. And, um, kind of based on that now it's, it seems like, uh, you know, him meeting her online and everything, it was a little bit of a different situation than what had happened with uh, the other woman, and I don't know exactly what went down, but it seems like that might have been a little different. But this was a dangerous guy. We're talking. I I think I 
I don't know if you said it or if I read it, but like they had some of these women had um, injuries that were consistent with like him stomping on them. Yeah, there were several uh, with Cynthia particularly. Her her neck had footprints on it. Right, and that's brutal. I mean, that's it's unbelievable. Um, you know, to think of a grown man uh, jumping up and down on somebody a woman's neck. Um, but you know, if he was doing drugs or whatever, uh, I think cocaine can fuel rage pretty easily. Uh, it's not an excuse, but it, it could explain at least to me a little bit of some of these like really, um, like, I don't know. I just, for some reason, the stomping really sticks out to me. Um, and yeah, I guess you're right. He probably was just dumping her body. Um, but that always bothered me cause she was so young and she was missing. Right. Yeah. Um, her family, you know, was looking for her and, uh, it just, in the accounts I've seen, it was like, I think her dad maybe talks about it. I'm not sure. I think it was one of her parents or somebody um, custodially uh, talking about it. And to me, it just seemed like they were so close to almost saving her. And that's that's a really hard pill to swallow. You don't have a whole lot of cases like that. And I don't know that this one necessarily is. It's just the way the narrative is told. It seems like, like, they missed it just, you know, just by a little bit. But he was more than likely just dumping her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think, I don't think she was still with us like significantly before that. It does feel a little bit that way. Um, you know, I have to kind of admire the guy for pulling him over and not just giving the dude a pass, uh, catching him uh, speeding out of there. Well, I think it was the blood all the blood he saw after he pulled him over was what really. Yeah, no, I know that's what tipped him off, but I'm saying like the fact that he pulled him over at all, instead of like ignoring that, it, you know, and that's a, that's a good little tip for law enforcement too. Like you should pull everybody over. You never know when you're going to get a serial killer. This is interesting. And, I'm, and this is kind of where I'm going to end it for today on my side of things. Cause we're going to be going back into these other Epona cases, but I wanted to, to talk about this part. So in 2019, I read a really interesting article from my PG now, which is my, it's Prince George news. So it's my Prince And this article came from Cole Kelly up there. And it, it's sort of the response of the minister of public safety talking about something that happened. Here's, here's the gist of the article. Uh, the minister of public safety, Ralph Goodale has responded to Prince George Carborough MP, Todd Doherty's opposition to the transfer of serial killer Cody Lejevkov from a maximum to a medium security prison. He was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder. He was 24 years old at that time. In an email correspondence with mypgnow.com, Minister Goodale's office released a statement. We share the grief and pain in the family of the victims of this killer who continue to endure unimaginable pain and grief. Uh, the convicted is currently incarcerated in a facility surrounded by two chain link fences topped with razor wire equipped with an electronic detection system that has multiple armed post cameras and mobile patrols. All registered victims were informed of the transfer shortly after it took place in accordance with CSC policy that has been in effect since 2012. To ensure that all victims are aware of the services and information available to them, 
CSC is developing new outreach strategies in consultation with their stakeholders. In the Canadian correctional system, incarceration at any security level involves severe constraints and loss of liberty. Inmates are regularly assessed by trained correctional professionals to ensure they are placed at the appropriate security level based on the security and programming needs. They are only reclassified to a different security level when that can be done safely. Canadians are better protected when offenders are gradually prepared for potentially supervised release, the alternative, releasing offenders cold turkey from maximum security into our communities is far less safe. Doherty's uh, office released a statement today with a copy of this letter sent to Goodale, uh, urging him to act immediately and return Cody to a maximum security prison. In the letter, Doherty said that Cody had never taken responsibility for his crimes. He quoted the Supreme Court Justice Parrott, who said that Cody lacked any shred of empathy or remorse. He should never be allowed to walk among us again. Uh, and one of the excerpts from the letter to Minister Goodall that Cole uh, includes as one of Cody's adult victims identified as Natasha Montgomery has never been recovered. Despite all efforts, the location of her remains has never been determined. Despite numerous attempts to uncover the location of her remains, the killer has refused to provide any information and has in fact used this piece of information as leverage to better his own personal circumstances. Brendan Fitzpatrick with the RCMP E division, major crime section, which if you'll remember, that's where the Epona Crimes Task Force comes out of. It's the superintendent of charge of operations during this murder spree. Mr. Fitzpatrick has called this movement absolutely unconscionable. Uh, Cody was transferred from BC's Kent Institution, a maximum security prison, to medium security Workworth Institution in Ontario in January of 2019. So... That's interesting that they moved him to a medium security facility. Maybe he's only a danger to women with drugs is what they're thinking. I have no idea what they're thinking, but um, he, it doesn't say why there's no. um, No, there's no good reason why, Um, you know, he'll stop being eligible for parole in around 2038. He is one of uh, and the reason I say this is because, like, a 20-year-old that kills anybody, but in this case, he is killing females. And they have a reason for why they did what they did that goes beyond just, you know, being a jerk. Like, if you get mad at somebody. Yeah. Uh, somebody that you've got a some sort of, you know, tangible relationship with. That's an explainable uh, circumstance, right? It, I mean, you're going to go to jail and you're going to have to be, uh, you're going to serve your time and you're going to probably feel remorse for it. And, uh, you know, it's something that happens. And when you're a child, you learn to control your emotions. So things like that don't happen. Right. Um, but when you've got a guy who like for, for what we can see, he couldn't have possibly had a reason to be mad enough at any of these ladies to kill them in that kind of manner. And he's never given any sort of explanation. Right. Um, he blames other people. He says it was all like drug related. He's got that sort of some other dude did it defense. Right. But he's not taking um, no responsibility. Right. Right. And so when you've got to sit now to me, the, uh, I don't know. Uh, that I'm sure we've sort of covered it, but the information I have about his 
his case and his victims, there was substantial DNA evidence. So there wasn't really a question. Like you said, it was blood, right? Like he, they, they found one of the victims blood in his apartment and her body has not been recovered, but I mean, that's a pretty telltale sign. And so it's pretty, it's not some other dude did it. Right. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah. And I will say this in addition to, it's not some other dude did it he's he's focused on the idea of minimizing it like even his testimony like uh you and you could look this up i think even the wikipedia gives like a, a rundown of this his testimony was even hey look i can't identify these people because they'll kill me but like i was there like i i was there before and after like the killings happened but i did not commit them it was like this big time drug dealer and these other guys that hang out with this big time drug dealer and i was just brought along for the ride cuz i was using the drugs like that's his tale. which is ridiculous right I mean, it's just minimizing yeah i mean it's it's like he admits being involved in the murders so you're right some other dudes did it and i was there blah 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 like he doesn't seem to have a good grasp of the culpability he would face even in that regard. Right. And you know, it's not acceptable anyway, but um, my point kind of is, you know, you were talking about them transferring him to this medium security versus the maximum security. I don't, did they follow up and say if he was transferred back? No, no, he's still in the medium. Okay. And, but, you know, when you've got this like tangible situation where somebody has murdered someone from, and there's a, a specific reason, right? Whether they got mad, whether, you know, it's going to be a dumb reason no matter what, but it's so much different than when you've got this kid who is so young and killed four people, you know, they don't mention any other possible victims, but honestly, I think four was enough at that point. And he's still, you know, he's still not taking responsibility for it. Those type of perpetrators are always the absolute scariest um, because I have trouble like getting into their head and like what would make somebody possibly do something like that, right? And so I I find it really hard to believe that they transferred him like that and that he's still there. But I guess somebody had their reasons. I wonder if he wasn't getting, like, his just desserts, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what prison is like in Canada. But, like, if he was getting harassed or beat up or whatever, there was probably some, yeah, it could be that it's based on their feeling of responsibility towards him, like violence happening towards him. It could be that's the response. A lot um, of times these these guys that uh, kill women and brutally kill them, it's a whole different story when they're picking, when somebody their own size is picking on them, right? Yeah, and so another thing I was thinking of, because another thing that can bring about a movement like that is like if he's got into somebody there for drugs real deep and they're just like renting him out essentially, that would be a reason for the, the CSC to move him because they're suddenly responsible for this kid who is clearly going to be murdered in their prison, who is part of a big sensational case. And it's going to like bring this massive hammer down on them again, if they don't do something about it. Like, so basically if, if, if he's there, 
because at one point he was in like a protective custody unit that was sort of for addicts. Um, but he's, he's there. And if he's got some kind of like problem going on now, another thing that had happened was during his testimony, even he blamed people who were in prison for being a part of these crimes. I'm not saying they were, I'm not saying his story is legit at all, but I do think there probably was some genuine fear from whoever he owed money to and whoever thought like, I'm, you know, facing this little sentence and he's going to drag me into his murder nonsense. I'm sure it has not been an easy, at that time it would have been five years he had been in there. Like from his conviction to the time they moved him, that's five years. And now we're talking another four years has passed. I'm sure that doesn't get easy uh, for somebody like him, particularly, you know, if there is a gang environment where there's a, and, and this is, this is true in Canada and you have to think of it from, you know, Canada's racial problems. If there's first nations people in there who take offense to him having killed, you know, these high risk first nations women, like he could be getting it regularly, like whatever type of violence he's experiencing, he could be getting a, tenfold from what you can imagine. Um, and there's also the youth factor to consider. Like, I, you know, 24-year-olds in prison, he's older than that. What is he? He's getting some math that I'm not allowed to do here. But um, he's going to be somewhere in his He 30s? was born in 1990, so he'll be 33 30. this year. Yeah, so he turned 33. His birthday would have been in January. Yeah, so he turned 33 this year. That is like he's probably okay or more okay now, but that was not gonna. That was not a fun way to kick off your twenties or thirties being in prison like that. Um, and I'm, I'm not excusing his behavior. I was I'm gonna just say saying, it wasn't fun for um, you know the 15 year old victim to die at 15 either. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I'm. I think the crimes are horrible. I think that his life is gonna suck and probably karmically so. Okay, so do you think he had other killings? Um, I, There's a big I, gap in time, and that's like one of the ongoing themes that's about to come up in some of this other stuff we're covering. That's why I asked. Um, well, is there a big gap in time? Yeah, so just to run this down, and this, this will be sort of how I, I get your last thoughts on this. Okay, so Jill Stachinko, she's the first known victim in October 2009, okay? Mm-hmm. So at the time that, like, she, this dude is 19 years old when he kills her. Right. Uh, the next victim is, like, either August 31st or September 1st of 2010. So it's almost a year later. And then there's two victims in a row. That's Natasha Montgomery and Cynthia Miles. And then November 2010 is Lauren Leslie and that whole scenario unfolds uh, November 27th of 2010. Okay. So you got October of 2009 and then um, 11 months passed um, mm-hmm. to 2010. And then it are three victims back to back and they go back to back. And so he was going on some sort of like, binge or something there um that is a lot of time but he might have surprised himself uh with the first killing and it i I don't know that 
Um, now, he is a serial killer, um, but I do think he could have had some weird underlying motives going on that are more aligned with, you know, traditional killing. Um, I But we don't get any of those details, at least not that I've gotten, right? Because um, he never takes responsibility for it. Uh, and Yeah, he just, he just babbles on about it. He doesn't give us good understanding of it. So based on, like, sort of what I've seen of him and his age, and uh, there is a gap there. I, I didn't really consider it to be that big of a deal that it was – because it's, it's all in, like, a you know, about a year, like, give or take a little, right? Yeah. Um, now they are like one, then like almost a whole year passes and then three kind of in a row. Um, but so I don't know. I, I feel like the investigation I saw, uh, based on the evidence that they were able to come up with and he wasn't, he definitely wasn't planning on getting caught and it looked like he left all kinds of like evidence with his last victim the 15 year old um because like i don't think i don't think that it was his intent necessarily there to kill her i don't know like like i said we don't know uh he hasn't taken responsibility for it but it seems unlikely to me that he has other victims and if he did have other victims it seems like uh just sort of the sloppiness of how he was and what he did, I think they would have uncovered at least like where there was unidentified female blood. Yeah, you're right. They would have come up with, they would have come up with something in the evidence, but basically what you're picturing is it's so disorganized, which he is. And he's young. It's so jacked up that they're able to find all this other evidence that sort of links them to these other people that if there were, quote unquote, unknown victims, there probably would have been some level of evidence and some level of charging related to it. Uh, because the investigation is, is very thorough from what I can see. And it, to me, it just seems like that would have come up. So I, I don't think that um, he has any other victims. I'm not going to say that like it's impossible because it certainly is possible, but he... Um, you know, they were able to pen these on him. I have you ever heard any speculation about it? Like, has anybody ever, you know, put that to said, you know, we think he could be responsible for these other crimes? No, 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 not really. Like, I, I think everybody's under the same mindset that you are. If he had done these any other crimes, we would uh, probably have evidence of it. I think. I think. It, I think you're. Uh, you had a very apt description where you said the first one kind of shocked him that he did it, and then like he did it again, and then bam, bam, he did two more in, in this short period of time, kind of like a spree. I think that's an apt description of what was going on with him, and I, I don't think he would have stopped if he wasn't caught with Lauren Leslie. But I do think that she is sort of proof that like. Uh, he didn't feel like he was going to keep getting away with these uh, sex worker murders. At some, at some point, he was going to get stopped, and he was switching think, things up. You think he targeted her specifically to kill her? Because I think that he was trying to have like some sort of normal interaction with her that went badly. Oh, you mean with Lauren Leslie? That's a possibility. Like she was so young. I mean, so young. Yeah, like that was the one that made like it all fall apart. Like it's it, here's the thing, like. 
what he's describing as group activities are not group activities at all and, ever unless you're watching like the hangover like right 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 exactly so when it comes to the case of Lauren Leslie she's really what makes everything fall apart and the whole idea of what he did to her is really what like sets him apart from being just an anger killer. Cause you know, even if he lured her and then something happened and she said she didn't like what was going on. And so he raped her or if they actually had sex and then she said she was going to tell or whatever, no matter what it was, one, it's unacceptable Two, he's clearly not organized enough to get away with it, which is going to bring me to my closing thoughts here. But I wanted to see, do you have anything else on him right now? No, that's it. Um, I I'm, I do sort of, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I am sort of questioning that motivation because um, that my impression was always that I don't feel like he lured her out uh, online or whatever to kill her, but I guess it's a possibility. But that makes him even worse than I initially. And I don't. I think he's terrible, even with that being the case. Um, it. I felt like his interactions with his other victims were more um, a chance circumstance, right? Again, we don't really know, but that's what my impression was. So that's interesting. Well, he was using them to get drugs and then killing them. That ultimately is what was going on here. What's, what? So if this can happen and this can all be wrapped up with uh, what goes on here, it, this is this is sort of where I fall on why I'm using this guy. Why haven't they solved these other cases? Or, like, some of them. You know what I mean? I and, think that... Go ahead. I didn't... Is that a rhetorical question? No, you can answer it. Um, I think that Lauren Leslie was the catalyst. Um, I think because... Uh, I, I don't know that the other three murders would have necessarily been solved without how it went down. So like, I think in every single trail of tears case, like individually, all the girls associated with them, if something like if a, if an officer pulled somebody over that had blood on them as they were leaving the scene of dumping the body, I think they all would go down like that. Right. I think, and one of the things you're you were referencing, they were talking about how luck is what really solved this. And so I think it was just a number of circumstances adding up. And then they were able to match uh, the DNA evidence that was available, right? Yeah. Having the suspect kind of fall in their lap like he did. Under other circumstances. Now, from what I sort of remember, he had, like, blood from the victim whose body wasn't found. Like, the blood was just on a chair or on the couch in his apartment. Yeah, he was incredibly disorganized. That's why I was going with... Like he hadn't even bothered to clean it up at all. I don't know that it was... Well... Uh, some of it was visible that I remember, but I don't know that it was like so obvious that like, he just like left it laying there. It could have been that like he had done some cleanup and missed some stuff, but it wasn't good enough to be anything real. What do you cleanup, mean? Cleanup. Oh. It wasn't any real effort. Like he, like he wasn't going to be good at this. 
No, and it doesn't seem like he was even trying to be good at it, right? Like, right. Nobody was looking for this guy. Um, yeah. So, no, nobody was looking for him. Nobody suspected him really. And we're going to talk about a couple of the guys next week that they get caught up in this, and we're going to end on one that I have so many questions about. I cannot wait to ask you, but I wanted to. I want to keep that in mind. That idea that like there is an element of luck that gets Cody caught. And I'm curious if that's really why these Epona cases, like some of them are so looming and open is because that luck just hasn't happened in those other cases. All right. That's probably enough for this one. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I sent you pictures of the couch. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Oh, you literally sent pictures of it. Hold on. Oh, shit. Did that change your mind? (laughs) That's under the cushions, though, right? No, that's the couch. Oh, wait. No, no, the cushions are gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was picturing. Okay. I think you're right. I think there are. So this, okay, so there's another picture you'll have to go find. Um, There's This couch had cushions on it and then a cover, like a blanket or something, over it. That's what I'm saying. Like he just covered, like he literally, like his version of covering it up was like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like it had stuff. See that blue thing on the far left in the other picture there? It was covering it. Okay. I, well, that's. I, but still, you're not wrong because look at the picture underneath it. Yeah. Look at, that's where that. all the blood is. Well, and then also this, which. This but do you dumb. see the little diagram drawn there with all the dots on it? That's blood everywhere. Yeah. That's what I remembered was there being just literally blood everywhere. Did you see the neck thing I sent you? Oh, wait. So that's outside of his bedroom. (laughs) This guy is such an idiot. I mean, but doesn't that, to me, that stuff just screams like, I'm not worried about getting caught for this. I, you know, I wonder about like cocaine and meth and stuff like that. Is that what does this? Like where you just get into that mindset? Because in my experience, interacting with people in those particular drugs, there's more an element of paranoia than this. Do you know what I mean? Like, even if you haven't killed somebody, you're really paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. Like just the use of the drugs itself, like, um, I had one person who's no longer in my, my life at all, but it wasn't anything related to, you know, crimes or anything. I could tell when they had been using because of the way they acted and they would be very concerned about getting caught for something or like, you know, did they have something on them? They didn't realize like going through their pockets (laughs) and I'd be like looking at their collar. There was, and I like, I eventually just had to like cease and desist from all of that because I was like, I don't even know what's happening. And like, so there's this guy and I hadn't seen him in a really long time, but he's definitely a 
cocaine user. He may have escalated. We ran into him at a concert. My wife and I did. And he was worried he had it in his beard. Like, that's all he had to say to me. I hadn't seen this guy in like 10 years. And he says to me, like, is there any powder in my beard? I was just like, that is the weirdest conversation, man. I um I don't know. I actually I don't know that I've ever come into contact with anybody that was a regular user of like meth or cocaine. I think he said cocaine, right? Is he definitely was using cocaine. I just couldn't tell if it was just powder or powder and like rocks or anything. And to me that would make uh my understanding of it. I'm, I'm, I don't really know, but it seems like he would have been like full speed ahead cleaning this stuff up because we're talking about a cut. I don't know whose blood that is, but uh, the one of the victims that wasn't found, I mean, we're talking about months in between when she went missing and when uh, Lauren was found and then this investigation was started. And so this blood has been here for months and... I've seen these trial photos before, these crime scene photos before. I just was never clear on whose blood was whose. I I have no idea, but to me, it, it, so yeah, I guess if all that is like Lauren's blood, that's different, but we know for certain because the body wasn't recovered, right? Right, right. One of these victims, they found blood of hers there. And so you're right. I guess if like, if that was literally um, Lauren's blood, that would be Which, different. Yeah, he uh, also had that on his body. You know what I mean? Like he was literally sitting in his boxer shorts in his truck, covered in her blood. That is so weird to me. And then, like, it's really cold there, right? So wasn't it strange that he only had on boxer shorts? Yes, it's brought up, like, in the testimony. Like, okay. it, it's brought up. Yeah, it was, it was, like, literally commented on, like, in the testimony of, like – why was he wearing the shorts? And he's like, I asked him and he, he said, that's just what I do. Well, you know, <laughs> um, which made his like poaching situation even less believable, but okay. So, you know, I don't know if she was at his apartment or what happened, but he didn't even take time to like wash the blood off and change its clothes before he went to dump her body. Like that's just a really strange like thought process. And that makes it seem like, I mean, yeah, he is disorganized, but that just makes him seem like a slobby killer or something. I I don't even know what it would be, but, um, and I think he's the type of guy who probably really just had a lot of disdain for women and are for females. And he just, he, he felt like they were more disposable than, you know, rational people think because of the way he just sort of went through this. But it it is bizarre to me um, that I, I get, and I think you're right. I I do think there were cushions on the couch, but to me, that's a lot of blood to be just leave left out. I mean, the rest of the, I mean, it doesn't look like super dirty. I mean, it's not super clean either, but you know, if you don't have people coming over, I guess, have to worry about cleaning up because you know it doesn't really matter but this definitely wasn't a guy who was concerned about getting caught at all no i don't think so either so it was sort of a surprise can you imagine those investigators oh (laughs) dude 
I, I'm telling you, the first two guys on the scene were like, what the fuck just happened? And then he, that's the reason they called the, the wildlife guy. Because he called the ranger out. Well, I mean, I'm, I guess they call them conservation officers. But they called the guy out that's like more familiar with the area. And I, they basically said to him, like, can you go out there and see if there's like a deer that looks like a giant redneck beat it to death in his underwear? And you know that um, those guys quit. Like they were like, man, this because they found a 15 year old girl. They I were mean, like, I don't want to do this job anymore because that's not what I signed up for. And, yeah, I imagine that that would be the case that they were just like, fuck this, I'm out. Um, I, I mean, don't that is the craziest sure, thing. And then, you know, you've got the officer um, who was debating on whether or not to. I, I imagine coming off the dirt road, he spun his tires or something, right? Something caught the officer's yeah, attention. He, he, he spun his tires and um, and the, the cop said, hmm, I think I'm going to have to go talk to this guy. Right. And so, you know, like for the rest of his life, he'll be like, I mean, it's, it wasn't a bad decision. It was a good decision. But you still, like, live with the, that moment of doubt, you know, where you're yeah. like, what if I had hesitated and not stopped him and not stopped this serial killer? It's interesting. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. But I, I do – I wonder, like, where he is today, like Aaron Keller. I He's tried to look him up. promoted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, tr- I tried to look him up at first, but I didn't. I didn't find anything as to where he went. Um, but it would be interesting to see uh, if he kept doing it. He was named constable of the year, I think, in 2014. Yeah, there are a lot of cases where um, serial killers have they are put to an abrupt end because of their terrible driving. A Raleigh woman was going for a run when she was attacked by a large bird. It happened near the Raleigh Rose Garden, and now that runner has a message for other people to be aware. WRL's Destiny Patterson is getting some answers as to why the woman may have been targeted. There are already so many things that runners need to be aware of, and now a woman has added one more thing to that list, birds. It was just any other morning for Beth Gartland, until suddenly it wasn't. I felt this really heavy impact on the back of my head. It happened right along her five-mile run. And at first I thought I was being attacked by a person. Instead, she fought off a bird. In my head I thought I had to get out of there really fast. She's not sure what kind of bird it was, but it left her with a few open scratches on her scalp. She says she was wearing a bun. If she had a ponytail, it could have represented like a a squirrel tail and and driven more of that predatory instinct. Robert Weaver is the owner of Freedom Wildlife Solutions. It's a professional wildlife removal service that specializes in birds. He says spring and early summer is the time of year where birds are more protective of their nests. We are in the prime nesting season for almost all bird species at this point. Those larger birds, especially geese, they will attack at this point. While Gartland says she won't give up running, she has switched up her route. I try to make sure that I know my route well enough to know I will never run 
on Pogue again <laughs> in the morning. Uh, Weaver says that bird attacks are rare, but he did note that his business has had more calls for removal in more urban and developed areas. That, in combination with the nesting season, is why he says that people should be aware of their surroundings and their pets. Destiny Patterson, WRL News, Raleigh. Mm, never heard of that before. I have I have bumped into a few cranky geese mm, out there yeah, on a walk yeah. or two. <laughs> yeah. Man, all right. <laughs>